response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce, and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. But how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Leading the way to a world beyond waste, a podcast series produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Chartered Institution of Wastes Management. And here's our host, Mark Shaler. Hello, and welcome to Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste the CIWM and Content with Purpose podcast series, in which we explore the resources and waste sector's role in the transition to a low-carbon, resource-efficient, circular, and ultimately regenerative economy. I'm Mark Shaler, and I've got over 30 years' experience in helping companies and organisations to understand what sustainability means to them, helping them develop strategies that truly embrace the transformative opportunities that come from our transition to net zero. And also, I always feel that if we place sustainability at the heart of innovation rather than at the end of marketing, we're always going to go a lot further. And this sector has more opportunity to do that than most. With this podcast series and through the people we meet, I want to know what changes are coming to the waste management sector as a result of this transition and what all that means to those people who work in the sector. Now, to help answer these questions, I'm joined firstly by Sophie Thomas. Sophie is the creative director or designer at Etsor Ventures, which I didn't realise was waste backwards. So Etsor Ventures. Sophie, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. I'm actually CTO at Etsor and I am director of circular design at Useful Projects and I'm still, I founded Thomas Matthews. So yeah, working in resource efficiency, two decades, circular economy, 15 years probably. Bit less than you, Mark, but still doing it, still cracking on with it. And also, Sophie, I think it's fair to say, as the originator and the architect of The Great Recovery, which we worked on together, you were really early to this and you genuinely changed the way that designers viewed waste. And we can talk a bit about that as we go, but, but maybe you can provide us with some context on how the waste and resources sector is developing its role within the circular economy. Well, I mean, I think uh, for me, from almost from an outsider's perspective, even though I'm a fellow of CIWM now, is really about that shift towards resource and away from waste and actually how we think about the opportunities within waste streams as not being something where we can we have to find the best way to throw it away or the best way to deal with it but actually really understanding the potential resource how to up the value of it how to think about reducing the environmental impact of all of our stuff you know the circularity gap report that came out last year actually pushed up the amount of carbon intensity and energy intensity in our products. So over 70% of the carbon of our energy use is in our, stuck in our resources and our products. So we absolutely need to get out. And as we've always said, with the work that I've been doing with The Great Recovery, all that, all that time, you know, 10 odd years ago, we were talking about this triangular relationship between designers material scientists and the resource managers because they're the ones that actually can help get it back into the loop and you cannot have a circular economy even as a concept if you don't think about the second the third and the fourth etc loop of those products and those materials obviously 
And I always say design is the single most powerful environmental tool that there is. That was quite staggering. 70% of carbon tied up or resources tied up. That's absolutely huge. So how effective do you think the sector has been at embracing the power of design and embracing second, third and fourth lives? Um, well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think um, the key to circularity is in the waste and resource management in sector. You know, if we can get the right policy pushes in place, if we can get the right um, EPR, for instance, of like how our products are manufactured and made with the re- material recovery in mind, then that's really powerful. And that was is and was happening. I mean, you and I went you know, even 10 years ago, we were going around different MRFs and different, you know, recycling facilities and different waste facilities, because what they're having to deal with, what you're having to deal with is whatever comes in on the trucks and the innovation that's happening in the design industry and the manufacturing, they're like really speeding up and there's such a time lag and unknown, you know, what happens when you empty out and you've got a completely new product and you've no idea what's in it and there's no spec to get, you know, it's just like, I mean, we were just walking around today with the electronics and just looking about how many different products now have motors in them. I mean, it's shocking. And you can't just put them through the machinery that they have here. They have to be pulled out because they have pops in them because they are, you know, they have all these other things that just can't go into the shredders. And so these guys are having to think on their feet all the time. But the technical expertise and knowledge that they hold is so fantastic, which is why, you know, all designers should come to these places to really see what happens to their products and understand how they should be designing things because it's still an issue. That's really interesting. I mean, I remember really clearly stumbling over products that were, well, they were less than a year old when we went there last, Mm -hmm. like that vibrating gaming chair. Oh, yeah. And there must be (laughs) maybe eight motors in those things, all of which can fail at any point. But I guess there's something here. I mean, when we talk about closing the loop on materials and the technology required to do so, that's relatively straightforward. I mean, it's a challenge, but it's a relatively straightforward challenge. But how do we turn the tap off? How do we begin to change people's desire for owning things and change their relationship with things? I mean, that's probably where a lot of the brand and marketing and kind of understanding should be focused And of course, obviously, in a circular economy, it's not just about recycling. It's about extending the value for as long as possible. And that is about reuse, repair, remanufacturing, and then recovery and recycling of the materials. So that whole reuse thing can be highly satisfying. It's something that we really need to work on. I mean, you know, it's all well and good having materials go back into the system. But if you're still producing and creating loads more of the material in the first place, then it makes absolutely no difference. And also, it makes the economies of scale not work. So a lot of these guys have said, oh, well, we actually, we could potentially extract that raw material, that rare earth or this, etc., out of that. But there's no economic value in us doing that. There's no, the economies of scale are all wrong. It's very much based on market value of tonnage and things and not actually about the long-term resource use we are on one planet we can't carry on extracting primary materials all the time it's just not possible so there's a kind of a need to think about how we really start living on one planet and I do still get very frustrated and we've you know the conversations that I have with brand marketing uh, departments talking about though I can't possibly change that because it's brand critical well you know when will it be planet critical? You know, when will it actually become the point that we we put our resources and materials first in that in that discussion? 
it's absolutely critical when we don't have enough resources to make our products out of. Leading the way to a world beyond waste. This episode is sponsored by Blue Phoenix Group, The Gap Group and CRJ Services. Blue Phoenix Group advances circularity by producing aggregates for the built environment from energy from waste ash residues. The Gap Group is a family business helping to create a circular economy through electrical waste reuse and recycling solutions. CRJ Services is a comprehensive waste recycling and forestry equipment provider operating throughout the UK and Ireland. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, worldbeyondwaste.ciwm.co.uk. Leading the way to a world beyond waste. So Sophie, I want to just dig into some of that a little bit. And mainly because of the way that extended producer responsibility legislation is framed. We're chasing weight targets. This is all about volume and heft. Whereas in Japan, under the HAL legislation, they're chasing value targets, getting the raw materials out that are scarce and that have economic and sustainability value within them. Yes. So I think um, these kind of things could be very game changing in terms of not just for like understanding how we get value back out of our waste streams, but also in the new area that I'm moving into, which is about, um, you know, circular technology. It's about taking very difficult waste streams, which have great potential, and then actually looking at the extraction technology needed and how we can couple that up with innovation, AI, um, different types of ways of thinking about the ways to actually extract and find better ways of extraction of materials. But if you're looking at um, a system built on volume and tonnage rather than value, it's, it makes it all that harder for innovation to happen. So it's not just about um, trying to get the most out of households, the most out of, you know, in terms of like uh, the base easy to recycle metals or easy to recycle materials. The stuff that's left over, you know, we're here, I've just been having a chat about Indium. You know, there's a fantastic material that we know we're going to need a lot of in the future, our current technology around photovoltaics, so solar panels, is very much uh, based using indium. We have a load of it in our touch technology, and yet we throw it away. I mean, you know, we cannot get those liquid crystals out. There's no economic model that is viable enough to get all those materials out of. Now, why is that? It's because of the fact that there's not enough volume. And actually we're not valuing the kind of concept around the, the science innovation around that that could really sort of change a lot of our materials to come back into the system. And it really does stifle a lot of innovation. And, and like we see it every day, but there's so much opportunity. We know that. We know that our waste streams are full of materials that are potentially we're going to need in the future, you know, all the kind of very hard to get companion extraction materials i.e. the materials that aren't necessarily mined primary mined materials like indium like all the rare earths often don't aren't mined on their own you know we have to get them out that way the extraction the processing is very intense energy intense can be quite toxic and yet we still find as with gold you know there's more tonnage well, i say tonnage there's more grams of indium in uh, lcd waste screens than there is still in getting out of the ore extraction. So it's exactly the same for loads of different, very particular specialist materials. And we we really do need to rethink that whole concept. So we're getting the rare earths out first. 
you know, 30 odd years ago when I first started, I was involved in a project called Urban Minds that foresaw the fact that we'd stored all this valuable material in landfill and at some point would dig it back up. I mean, that project had a life and is no longer. But there is something here about being able to, at the very least, get stuff back out of the ground that we may need in the future. Once the technology has caught up with the aspiration. Yeah, and that, but that's one of the reasons why in circularity, incineration and, or energy from waste is actually not the preferred option because actually you end up losing, you're going for the high, the quick calorific. And actually often it's, it's classed as a sort of low carbon solution because you're pushing away from fossil fuels into say uh, waste, energy from waste. But actually you're losing all the materials as well. So you're kind of it's it it should happen it should happen right at the end if it happens, but not straight away. So we can actually extract as much value out of it as possible. I mean, absolutely. Energy from waste is a really challenging stream at the moment. Mm. But Sophie, just to go back to that really tricky question, how do we begin? And as somebody that truly understands not just the sustainability part of this debate, but you really understand brand and marketing as well. You've got a communications background. How do we help people aspire to own less and to own better in a world where it's so noisy and they're offered more at the press of a button? I haven't yet found an answer to that question, Mark. <laughs> because actually, you know, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it? And I think the only thing that, that we really see is a kind of push towards fixability, as we've seen with the fixing laws that are coming out. Brands being more aware of it, so... you building it into part of their model. But actually, we still live in a very, you know, we define ourselves by what we wear, what we have. It's really difficult. And I think whenever, I can't remember when actually, when the resource and waste strategy first came into publication, I think it was 2018, I think. I think so. And reading that, and you just saw the, the kind of potential of extended producer responsibility going into lots of different waste streams or lots of different product streams, Um, not just in electronics, for instance, but, you know, starting in packaging as it was going to do, then going into things like um, mattresses, bulky waste or um, clothing and textiles um, and all of these things. And actually really understanding the cost and the value of a product is properly put in there. So you have an extraction value, you have extraction tax effectively. So how much did it cost to mine those particular minerals that go into your mobile phone? How much did it truly cost to ship that piece of textile across from one country to the other and look at the whole of that supply chain? Where's the provenance of those things? So that whole layering of the true, the real picture of our products is never reflected in the cost. And I think if we got to that point where the true value of things was in place and we really had all of that there, then I think we would be in a very different position than we would be in now. And I think that's probably one of the only ways to do it you know it's a bit like when will people start reacting to the climate emergency do we need to have some massive major shocks will we see the price of you know metal skyrocketing or will we see countries stopping to export to different countries etc so it's a very volatile and very difficult question but I think we do have to raise this haze of like how cheap things can be because they're not no you're absolutely right I mean I remember drawing that source map of a laptop for you. And you saw the amount of materials being moved in order to allow me to get online quickly. 
and the harm in our pocket is huge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you, Sophie. I'm also joined by Chris McDonald, who is CEO of the Materials Processing Institute. Chris, before I ask you your first question, can you quickly give me an explanation or a description of what the Materials Processing Institute does? Um, hi, Nick. It, it's really great to be here with you and Sophie talking about this. And, and yeah, certainly. So the Materials Processing Institute is an independent research organisation. And our job is to develop new technology, primarily for the steel industry and the metal sector, but for heavy industry more broadly. Um, and we uh, we develop this technology to help those industries be more efficient, tackle climate change and uh, and also to cope with the digital revolution. And we've got a few areas of research focus. Um, and one of them is around the circular economy, because these big industries that we're, we're talking about, you know, like sort of metals, ceramics, glass and so on. They're very resource intensive in terms of their raw materials um, and, and they operate on very small margins as well. So re resource efficiency is very important for them. Um, and also they produce side streams as well of of, um, of materials that they call wastes, but are actually could be really valuable for um, for other processes and other supply chains and industries too. So so trying to understand how we can create more circularity around materials and develop the technologies to do that is a really big part of what we do. Yeah, how do we ensure that the UK becomes better at managing its waste? Well, if I think about the the industries that we're working with, you know, a lot of the emphasis there is really on recycling and it's about developing new technologies that promote recycling. And we've got some big new recycling challenges that we need to, to tackle as well, because the traditional industries of the past are constantly innovating and using, looking at new ways to use materials. So, for instance, in the in the steel sector, we're constantly developing new types of alloys to make steel stronger and lighter than ever before. And that means after a period of time, these alloys come back into circulation again. So we need new technologies to do that. But, you know, if we if we took a more fundamental approach and we looked at the kind of basis of the of the waste hierarchy, then really the starting point is going to be about reduce. And I think one of the big conceptual problems we've got there is the lack of genuine value that's placed in our economy on materials. And when I talk about value, you know, it's not just about cost here, but the environmental burden or the or the cost of human capital in extracting these materials in places all over the world and then transporting them to locations and making them into manufactured goods. And, and even the use of the word waste is a big challenge here. You know, I mentioned some big industries refer to things that are waste that are actually valuable for other areas. Um, and I'm sure members of the Chartered Institute of Waste Management recognize this, that, um, you know, they're dealing or, you know, the, the members, the listeners here are dealing with these really valuable products all the time. And to refer to them as waste actually is a bit of a challenge because it, it, it switches public perception. So I think a big thing that we've got to do is really try and improve the uh, the sense of the value of materials so that we can take materials more seriously um, and so that we can then drive to reduce the materials we use and improve our resource efficiency. And you're right. The word waste is loaded. Byproduct is less loaded, but a little less easy to say, I suspect. And it's about making sure that the value is apparent in those materials as they move through and spin off into other uses. And we've had the National Industrial Symbiosis Programme over well, decades ago now, linking up producers with suppliers of materials, with demand for secondary materials. And I don't think there's anything like that around at the moment, is there? Um, no, it's actually something we've looked at at a local level where we've got industrial plants that are maybe really reasonably closely located and we could find symbiosis. So symbiosis in the industrial arena is something that companies really do strive towards. And you find this particularly in chemicals clusters, for instance. But it can be surprisingly difficult to then sort of bridge across to other industries as well. And I think part of the problem here 
is that when we're trying to drive for more symbiosis or indeed more recycling, a greater circular economy approach, to do that, we have to create new technologies, but we also have to create new markets at the same time as well, and possibly also change standards because you know often the quality assurance of a process is based on is based on its raw materials and, and how it works as well and that's quite a big hurdle then for an individual company so the company could see value in the symbiosis but fundamentally if their if their market won't accept it or their clients won't accept it or there is a regulatory hurdle then it becomes a problem so i think this is going to be a, a big effort and it's going to be a bigger effort than just involving some companies in a in a sector it's really about educating customers about getting legislators to put the right kind of regulatory framework in place to create the environment where that symbiosis then makes commercial sense. That's almost the perfect definition of a wicked problem, isn't it? We've got to change the acceptable level of technological permissions and the regulations that sit behind it. And we need to change the perception of the consumer or the secondary or the tertiary producer. Just looking forward, what, what in your opinion, and I'll go with you first, Sophie, what, in your opinion, are the hot topics that the sector is going to deal with? And can you illustrate your answer maybe with a few examples? Yeah, well, I can. I mean, actually, one of the things that we've been doing recently is working in the West Midlands with WMCA, with the combined authority, to look at setting up an industrial symbiosis place around there. And I really um, totally echo what Chris was saying about it's not just about pulling people together and even doing sort of across different sectors, but it's actually about that new technology needed and new markets. And I think it's often the new markets that hold people up because, you know, we go, oh, well, I can extract this or I can get this new material or I can recover this material, but I don't have enough of it to sell on market. And therefore, it goes sort of back to this volume-based approach that we have. Um, one of the things that we've also really been considering at Etsor is about educating the manufacturer or educating the market, like a B2B market. So if a company is used to buying a virgin product, say a virgin plastic at a particular specification, and you're trying to substitute it with, say, another bio material in the future, you know, their specification is going to be incredibly high. It's, it's there that it can last, it can be on shelf for years, it can, you know, it can withstand loads of different temperature shifts, if we want to shift people to, you know, going into biomaterials, we are really going to have to consider how do we change the specifications? Does it need to be on a shelf for two years? Can it just have a much shorter lifespan? You know, what are the conditions that we can change that can make these materials come on board so we get less dependent on the, on the fossil fuel materials that we have around us? And that's a very live example of some of the work we're doing at the Venture Studio, just looking at those kind of relationships and how we have those discussions with the people who will effectively be buying all these new materials. I guess there's also an issue there about bringing on new biomaterials. Yeah. What are the treatment processes, the recovery processes that are in place? Because at the moment, with home compostable packaging, it's absolutely like the Wild West out there. Yeah, absolutely. And we're nowhere near ready for these types of materials for the systems because the systems aren't there, we don't have those kind of systems in the UK. We don't have industrial composting. AD systems don't like it. They'll pull them all out because they don't know what type of plastic it is. You know, where's who's designing those systems? Because we do have to shift. And I think we can't just say, oh, we haven't got the system. We have to think about, you know, I'm constantly pushing people to think about what are the next materials coming online. We're seeing a bit of it now and it's sort of falling between the gaps and causing contamination here, there and everywhere. But actually, that is the future, potentially, particularly in something like packaging. You know, 
we can't carry on using these materials that will last a thousand years and we're totally reliant on fossil fuels to make them and end up in the oceans, etc., etc. We have to start shifting it. So we have to think about these new systems. That in itself is a huge system failure. Yeah. And they end up in countries that have really underdeveloped systems and waste treatment. And they slip into the natural environment rather than being enclosed in a waste system that can manage it effectively. Exactly. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm a massive fan of the technological cycle for packaging and the biological cycle for food waste. But there's going to be a blurring of those two as we move through, I suspect. And Chris, the same question for you, really. What are the hot topics or the big issues that you see in your world? Sophie's given a really great example there, actually, of... um, the different approach we'll have to take when we, if we want to use these new materials. And, and maybe I can then offer something that's a bit different, which is to look at the sort of processing side of it. And of course, the big problem that we're all grappling with at the moment is, is climate change and the new technologies we want to develop for climate change. But it seems like every solution that we come up with is very materials intensive and requires a greater complexity of materials than solutions that have gone before. So a really great example or quite simple example is, is EV batteries. Um, so, of course, we're electrifying everything, but then we're going to end up with millions of end-of-life batteries where currently we have no proper separation processes for not, not just for the metals, lithium and cobalt, but graphite and so on as well. So this this sort of gets scrunched up into what, what's referred to as black mass at the moment, which is lots of kind of scrunched up uh, waste material. Now, the Materials Processing Institute, we've just invested in a new um, hydrometallurgy facility where we're going to start doing some research on that. But that's just one example, really. I mean, the smartphone that I'm talking to you on it will be another example, you know, where you've got precious metals and, and again, metals such as cobalt all in this really small space. And a lot of these devices are landfilled at the moment. So part of the problem here is about ensuring that as we strive to reduce carbon emissions, to sort of digitize and reduce our carbon emissions and save the planet, ultimately, we can't do that by utilizing ever more exotic materials in more complex combinations. And also, we do need to get this design aspect right at the start to make sure that we strive for the simplest and most environmentally friendly solutions, not just in terms of the kind of use of the object, but in terms of the full material cycle as well. And it also asks the question of what is the role? And you both nudged it really a little bit. What is the role of the consumer, the customer, the citizen? How do we get the citizen more engaged in this? And how do we get them to look at the way that they purchase and the way that materials are used within that? Um, yes, I think there's a massive role for the consumer, actually, um, because the introduction of a lot of these products and technologies is really dependent on there being a market. And so there's a huge role for the consumer to pay. But I think what the consumer often lacks is information. You know, we've had some discussion, I think, over the last couple of decades about how we give consumers better information in, say, the food sector so that they can make healthier food buying choices. And I think that's the kind of thing that we would need to do in in other sectors as well, ultimately to give consumers um, the opportunity to make more kind of materials friendly or planner friendly choices. Now, it's not all business to consumer, some of it's business to business, and that's where there's a role for regulation. You know, we can regulate businesses, we can regulate supply chains, but ultimately it will be pulled from consumers' consumer demand by informed consumers able to make informed decisions that, that enables businesses then to then do the right thing. Chris? You've got a massive challenge, and but what an opportunity. My guess is once we begin to shift consumer behaviour in one part of the world, then it will roll across into the other parts. So whilst the inertia is massive, the momentum will be equally huge. Sophie, what are your views on that? 
I think Chris is absolutely right. There's a huge, I mean, you know, if you've asked me, you know, where did all the materials come from in your phone, I would, you know, I'd struggle after about, I mean, you know, if we know a bit, but it's so hard to know these things. Our, our products are so complicated now that we, we, you know, that kind of knowledge is very difficult to hold or even find or expose. The other thing I would say about that is pressure because actually, you know, we need to have the consumers to start to really start pushing brands for better products, fixability in their product, uh, reuse services, like systems that are actually right for this stuff. And because even the uh, even as an early adopter, you know, which you often brands say, you know, not everybody wants that, but it doesn't. You've got to start by building that up, so it becomes something that we're used to doing. You know, building cascade models of refurbishing so that you know our products stay in use for as long as possible that kind of thing that brands won't really do this on their own unless there's pressure from policy pressure from regulation and pressure from their consumers to do the right thing because otherwise you know we're just going to end up with lots more things like single use vapes come on markets or things that actually sound really good but then sort of swamp our markets <laughs> Which is something they're dealing with a lot here at the moment. We've had a lot of discussion about single-use vapes. Yeah, I've just done a video on them and the scale is absolutely staggering. That's interesting. Thank you both very much. And, and just to finish off, can you both give me a key takeaway? What would your key takeaway on the subject be? Something that you'd like to leave our audience with? Sophie, we'll go with you first. Um, well, I mean, I've been working in this area for two decades. Not as long as you, Mark, obviously, but... Uh, um, very long time and the one thing I would say is that the potential of making things out of materials that are already in our societal loop or in our waste streams or in our products is already there so we just need to unlock the creativity and the innovation around how we extract the stuff how we get things moving we don't we need to really kind of reconsider how we make things at the moment because the planet just can't handle it that much more and we are going to get to a point where things are going to go pretty you know pear-shaped so I really think even though I slip from uh, eco-anxiety and depression all the way back up to hope I do have massive hope and I do get really excited about the potential about what can be done but we just need to like really support it in all parts of our society policy investment understanding, design process, extraction, etc. Yeah, it totally is, and it is totally urgent. We've got about six tipping points all going to hit within the next few years. And the value and the power of design to work across all of these things, it needs supercharging and bringing to the fore really quickly. Chris, your takeaway, your key takeaway. I, I suppose the one thing I'd encourage listeners to do and then also try and encourage as many of your friends and family to do as well, is to really look differently at the world. Look at all of the things around you, you know, everything you touch or everything you use, and recognise that it's either made from something that's been dug out of the earth or something that's been grown on the surface of the earth. And as such, it has incredible value. And our challenge is to ensure that we don't use that value once and then dispose of it, but that we use it again and again and again and again. And I think if we could all look at materials in a different way and recognise that value, then we'd be a long way to solving some of these solutions. Absolutely. Thank you. That is the nirvana of the circular economy, isn't it? It truly is. 
whether it be chemical recycling, whether it be reuse and repair, whether it be longevity and durability, or whether it be simple mechanical recycling, nothing is waste. Away has gone away. Thank you both. I can't thank you enough. You've been amazing. I've really enjoyed that conversation. And as a call to action, if you're listening in, have a look at the Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste Elements on the CIWM website. There's a raft, there's a great plethora of tools on there that you can play around with. And please join us again for the next episode. Thanks once again to the sponsors of this episode, Blue Phoenix Group, The Gap Group and CRJ Services. You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Leading the Way to a World Beyond Waste digital series by going to worldbeyondwaste.ciwm.co.uk And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on socials to check out more of our podcast collaborations. (music) 